Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Today is somewhat of a special day for me. June 27th also fell on a Sunday in 1976. That was the day I preached for the first time in my first church. I wasn't even ordained yet. I was only halfway through seminary, but I preached in that little church twice every Sunday for the next two and a half years and have preached most every Sunday since in the 34 years that have passed uh, today. So I stand here as a testimony of God's faithfulness of the truth. I preached that first day in John 15 where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, you'll bear fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That was actually the only sermon I had that day. So I preached it. I have more sermons now. But uh, this, I've been reading through the pastoral epistles and through Titus and this passage has caught my attention. And so I decided to work on it and um, share with you something of Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 14. Let me read it. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. I think this passage has three things to say to us, quite simply, and yet very profound. The first is this. Grace has appeared. Grace has appeared. In our culture, we, give great, uh, we have great anticipation for the appearance of new things that we think are going to transform our lives. And marketers know that, and they know how to milk that for all it's worth. In fact, even to create that anticipation... Uh, think of the recent uh, release of the Apple iPad and all the anticipation that was strung out for months. This is going to be just better than anything. But our text tells us that something far greater than anything in the world has appeared. The grace of God has appeared in Jesus. Now you don't appreciate the significance of this until you understand what it is to live a life with no grace. We can figure out what that looks like a bit by looking down at the end of the passage and considering why Jesus came, what he saw, what need did he come to address. And he tells us three things in verse 14. He came to redeem us. Redeem is a slave market term. I don't know if you know that. And we understand that people are enslaved in this world. We know it's true. All over the world, human trafficking and slavery exist. An undeniable testimony to the wretchedness of humanity. But it's not just in places like Sudan and Thailand that people are sold into slavery. Many of us know firsthand what it looks like to be enslaved. 
enslaved by some sinful practice, enslaved by our out-of-control lusts, enslaved by the nightmare of our bad choices that are now bigger and more powerful than we are. This is what the evil one does. He uses our fleshly desires and the lure of the world all around us to snare us. And when he does, we're trapped, hopelessly enslaved. Though we may look quite normal, we need grace to appear. The second thing we see that Jesus came to address is that he came to purify in verse 14. In other words, people are living with defilement. We know that's physically true in many countries of the world. People drink water that's unsafe. They live with open sewers running down the streets. They know nothing about personal hygiene. They suffer from untold parasites and are victims of every disease-carrying insect. There's much in the world that needs to be done and can be done to clean up that kind of defilement. But there's an even worse kind of defilement. Defilement that you can't see and that no clean water can fix. The defilement of sin. The defilement of an unclean conscience. Burdened with an unspeakable past. The defilement of a double life that makes you feel dirty every day. The truth is, many probably sit here this morning. Overwhelmed by some sense of defilement that you can't get rid of. We need grace to appear. And then in verse 14, it tells us that Jesus came to make us a people of his own. In other words, he sees that we are orphans and aliens and displaced and disenfranchised. This too is a problem throughout the whole world, whether it's the lost boys of Sudan or, or, the, or the millions of illegals living in this land with no, really no country of their own. But the Lord says, this is all of our problem in regard to God. Paul writes, remember you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. Now when you're an alien with no power and no rights, an orphan with no one to care, you can't help yourself. You need a deliverer. You need grace to appear. And this morning I announced to you, grace has appeared in Jesus. That's the whole story of the Bible. When Adam and Eve were hiding in shame after the first sin, grace appeared in the cool of the day, calling their name. When the whole world was alienated from the Creator, serving other gods, grace appeared. And God called Abraham and entered into a covenant with him. When even the descendants of Abraham were enslaved uh, and without a home down in Egypt, grace appeared. And God delivered them from that slavery. When they wandered about in ignorance, grace appeared. And God spoke his word from Mount Sinai. When they rebelled against the Lord and were overrun by their enemies, grace appeared. And God raised up deliverers. When they were ensnared by the things of the world around them, grace appeared. And God raised up prophets to call them to repentance and to promise salvation for them. Even when they were so disobedient that God cast them out of the land and back into slavery in Babylon, grace appeared and God brought them home and restored. 
Oh, but all of that pales into, in comparison to what has happened now. In the little town of Bethlehem, a virgin gave birth and grace appeared. And his name was Jesus. In the backwood villages of uh, Galilee, in the home of the disregarded nobodies of the land, grace appeared as Jesus walked into a town and healed the sick, made the blind to see. Later, as the Passover feast drew near and people gathered in Jerusalem, grace appeared riding on a donkey into town to the shouts of Hosanna, God save us. Ah, but they wouldn't have such a Messiah. They crucified him and buried him and sealed his tomb. But on the morning of the third day, grace appeared, alive again from the tomb. And after Jesus ascended into heaven to the throne of God on the day of Pentecost, grace appeared as God poured out his spirit on his people. And somewhere along the road of life, when you were overwhelmed by your sins, grace has appeared in the gospel, the good news that Jesus saves sinners. And even this morning, as the word of God is proclaimed and as we come to the table, grace appears. As Jesus comes near to us in his saving power. When grace appears, you see, Jesus changes everything. We're redeemed from the slavery of sin that held us captive. We're cleansed from the filth that we could never clean up ourselves. We're adopted into the family of God, made part of his holy people, heirs of all of his promises, co-heirs with his son Jesus, our Savior. This morning I proclaim to you the very best news you have ever heard or ever will heard, will hear. Grace has appeared in Jesus. That truth makes other great appearances in the history of the world look like nothing. Significant things like the appearance of fire, the appearance of the wheel, the appearance of gunpowder, the appearance of the printing press, the appearance of electricity, the appearance of steam and internal combustion engines, the appearance of the airplane, the appearance of antibiotics, the appearance of the computer and the internet. All of those are world-changing events, but none of them can free you from Satan's slavery. None of them can wash your soul clean. None of them can make you part of the family of God. Only the grace which has appeared in Jesus can save your soul. So again this morning, as week after week I would do, I call you to run to Jesus for mercy. You will not be disappointed, for in Jesus, God's grace has appeared that can save us and restore us and transform us and bring us to glory. Ah, but that wonderful truth is just the setup for the second truth, the main point of this whole passage. And that is this. Grace teaches us gratitude. Grace teaches us gratitude. Next Sunday is the 4th of July, the anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And one of the most memorable lines in that historic document uh, reads like this. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. For a generation, that sentence has uh, made the hearts of Americans soar with a sense of, of liberty and opportunity. 
These days, many people, I think, are rightly concerned that such divinely granted rights have devolved into a certain entitlement mentality, which says someone owes me whatever I need. I have a right to have whatever anybody else has. I deserve better than this. I shouldn't have to put up with this. All of which is a far cry from God, far cry from God-given right to live and have the liberty to pursue my dreams. Much of what we have been given in this land is great, but uh, we're not entitled to everything. Now, along those lines, I fear that the church in our rightful emphasis on grace, on God giving us his mercy. I feel that sometimes that's been distorted and made into a baptized form of of an entitlement mentality. I don't have to do anything. God will just give it to me. Or worse, if you say I have to obey and be faithful, that's just legalism. Well, this morning our text teaches us differently. Here we learn that grace is actually intended to teach us godly gratitude. Charles Simeon, writing in the mid-1800s, put it this way. We will not concede one atom of the freeness or riches of divine grace. Yet will we maintain that the gospel is conducive to morality. For at the same time that it brings salvation to men, it inculcates every species of moral duty and enforces the practice of godliness in the most authoritative and energetic manner. This is evident from the words before us. And the words are what we find in verse 11 and 12. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Now, there are two lessons here which God's grace intends to teach us. One's a negative, one's positive. First of all, the negative one. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. I love the directness of this. Grace doesn't just teach us to read our Bibles and pray all day. It doesn't just teach us to ask lots of questions and and investigate things and ponder things. It doesn't just teach us to be nice and not offend anyone. Simply put, grace teaches us to say no. No. To say no to ungodliness. Anything that flies in the face of our Lord. No. To say no to ourselves, to all those worldly passions that constantly burn in us. No. Now, you know, if you're dealing with a con man, the longer you talk, the worse trouble you're in. You're safest when right up front you say, no, no. And ungodliness and worldly passions are just like that, too. If you listen long enough, they will begin to make a perverted kind of sense to you. Don't listen. Say no. Say no. The grace of God teaches us to say no. Then there's a positive exhortation. The grace teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. 
Oh, we want to make it all so spiritual. Go to church a lot and pray a lot and read only devotional books. No, that's not what it says. The call is actually rather down to earth. Control yourself. Live with integrity. Upright lives. Do what God says. Act like he acts. And when we preach like that, people say, oh, that's just moralism. Moralism. Telling people to try to be good. No, that's actually what grace teaches. That's what God's grace demands. If you were a slave and somebody paid the money to buy you out of the slave market, you would owe that person enough great of, uh, debt of gratitude to not go sell yourself back into slavery. If you were filthy and defiled and somebody rescued you and cleaned you up from whatever toxic mess you were in, you would owe them enough gratitude to not jump back into slime. If you were an orphan child, without a home and without parents and without family, and someone loved you enough to adopt you and provide for you and make them part of your family, of their family, you would owe them the gratitude of respect and humble obedience. It's true at every level of human life, and it's true in our relationship to the Lord. Grace teaches us to be grateful. We tend to think that the law is our teacher. So it's easy for us to begin to believe that we're saved by grace, but then the law teaches us godliness. Well, the law certainly does help us to understand what godliness looks like. But our text says it's grace that teaches us godliness. Interesting. It's grace that teaches us godliness. How does that work? Suppose all we have is the law. We try what is to do what is right, but as is always the case, we sin. And when we sin, the law condemns us. And the more we sin, the more the law condemns us. So do we get more and more righteous? Possibly, on the outside we do, and we get very proud of our righteousness. But more likely we don't. We just feel the condemnation of the law, and we sink deeper and deeper into despair and hopelessness. But when grace teaches us godliness, it's different. When we sin, the law certainly condemns us, and the Spirit convicts us of our sin. But when we confess our sins, God forgives and restores us to fellowship with him. But say we sin again, and again feel the weight of conviction and the condemnation of the law. We're tempted to say, oh, I can't go back and ask for mercy again. I'll I'll, I'll make it on my own, and God's grace says, you don't have to. I'll forgive you. I forgive. But sin being as pervasive as it is, we fail again, and perhaps we fail again and again and again. And again and again, our Savior graciously offers us forgiveness and restores our souls. But each time we are cast upon his mercy and know the sweetness of his forgiveness and his restoration, something happens. Our hearts are bonded more tightly to the Savior. Our sense of gratitude for his grace grows deeper and deeper. Our love for such a savior grows even stronger than our fear of judgment. Until the thing that keeps us from sin is not that we're afraid we're going to be judged. 
but that we love Jesus and are grateful for the joy of his fellowship and want not to grieve him again. You see, those are very different things. Very different kinds of godliness. What the law produces, what grace produces, just to make the difference clear. Suppose you're married and you know your spouse is being tempted to be unfaithful. Would you rather he or she remain faithful because they know that you will find out and they fear the consequences? Or would you rather they remain faithful out of gratitude and love for you? Or if you're the one tempted to stray, which is more noble? To be faithful because you fear you'll get caught and it's going to ruin you? Or to be faithful because no matter how attractive anything else might be, I love the one back at home. You see, God is pleased most when his grace teaches us the gratitude of godliness. Finally, one more truth before we close. Grace will appear again in glory. Grace will appear again, this time in glory. You know, good writing and good speaking tends to come back around to where it started. That's kind of what happens here. The Apostle Paul begins with the appearing of grace in Christ, and he comes back around to Christ appearing again in glory, and in between he teaches us what our life ought to look like being in Christ. And so we end with the expectation that Christ will appear again this time in glory. Now you note that the apostle does not tell us most everything we wish we knew about this. He just doesn't tell us. Will this be a premillennial or a postmillennial appearance? Doesn't say. Will it be soon or will it be centuries from now? Doesn't say. Will the world have become so corrupt that it's uninhabitable for a Christian? Or will the gospel have taken root and the whole world been evangelized? Doesn't say. What will be the events leading up to that great day? Will it be obvious to us or will we be surprised? Doesn't say. Paul doesn't tell us all the things we want to know, but he does tell us a couple of things. First, he tells us that when Jesus appears, it will be a glorious appearing. We're at a loss to even describe what that will be like. When the Bible uh, gives us some descriptions, we can hardly get our head around them. But we know that this appearing will be different from Jesus' first appearing. Back then he appeared as a baby in a manger. Now he will appear as a glorious conqueror. Back then he appeared with his glory veiled. Now he will appear with his glory uh, uh, open and, 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 and glorious and frightening even to his enemies. Back then he appeared to suffer for the sake of, his, for, of sinners. Here he appears triumphantly to judge the world and bring his own to glory. Back then people always uh, often wondered what disappearing meant. But when he comes, the effect of his grace will be crystal clear. We will see what it means to be set free from slavery. We will see what it means to be completely purified from defilement. We will see what it means to be the people of God. As Apostle John wrote, dear friends, now we are the children of God, but what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Jesus will appear again, this time, in great glory. And then secondly, he teaches us in this passage to wait in hope. We don't wait very good 
we Americans, we're a pretty impatient lot. Nonetheless, Christians are called to a life of waiting. Not sitting idly by doing nothing. Not scurrying around to try to make it happen. Not being anxious and fretting about all the things we don't understand. But called to live in hope. To labor in expectation. To be faithful, knowing our faithfulness is not in vain. To serve him always with one eye, looking for his appearing. John Stott put it this way. The apostle in this short paragraph of only four verses brings together the two termini of the Christian era. That is the first coming of Christ which inaugurated it and the second coming of Christ which will terminate it. He bids us look back to the one and on to the other. For we live in between times. Suspended rather uncomfortably between the already and the not yet. Jesus will appear again, this time in glory. Whenever we come to the Lord's table, as we do this morning, we come with a threefold perspective. That's what the apostle instructs us to. We look back and we remember Jesus' death, which was the point of his first coming, that grace appeared to us. We look forward to his future coming. We're not to forget that history is headed somewhere. We're not to forget the gospel of grace, which we've learned. We're not to lose hope, but with grateful expectation, be faithful until we see the victory in in its full uh, uh, bloom. And then third, we are to live today by his grace. That grace teaches us gratitude, which leads to godliness. That grace draws us into fellowship with this Savior in the supper. That grace cleanses and renews us day by day. That grace is sufficient for every day since the Lord came until he comes again. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your grace that has appeared in Jesus. Well, God forbid that we should just go on the same like everyone else and not feel the weight of the implications of that, not be totally transformed because of what you've done. We thank you, Lord, for your word that teaches us, instructs us. We thank you for your spirit that gives us the power to live. We thank you, Lord, for the supper that sets before us in visible, tangible form the grace of the gospel. Oh, Lord, refresh us by such grace. In Jesus' name, amen.